start tomorrow morning Did you forget or were your kisses my final warning? Pop enough, you smile easy What was I supposed to say? It's the ground and it dies easy Why did I decide to stay? Hello and welcome to episode 1350 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hey, Ben. Wow. <laughs> Hang on, I got mail. Someone else. I got right. mail. Hang on. That was mail? Oh, I see. <laughs> I got a baseball book in the mail. Oh, nice. Which one? Unwritten. Bat flips, the fun police, and baseball's new future. Mm, all right. So we can proceed with the episode now. We are doing a preview podcast, so we'll be speaking to Jake Kaplan of The Athletic about the Astros and Anthony Fennick about the Tigers. He is with the Detroit Free Press. But we've got news, and we had some plans to banter about other stuff, but we're going to table those plans because Mike Trout is going to be an angel for a very, very long time. And this was a, a Mike Trout podcast before it was a Shohei Otani podcast or a Williams Estadio podcast. This podcast started the same season that Mike Trout really established himself as Mike Trout. So he's always been kind of the the patron player of this podcast. And now he is a much wealthier man. He signed what is being called a a 12-year, $426.5 million extension, although he was already signed for this season and next season for 66 and a half. So really, this is adding 10 years and $360 million onto that, which will take him up through his 39th birthday, his age 38 season. So basically the remainder of his career likely to be on the Angels. So lots to talk about. You and I have both written our Mike Trout pieces, but neither of us has read the other ones. So whatever we say will be new to each other. Yeah, I uh, I uh, was excited by this news as a, as a writer. Normally when breaking news happens, I'm very scared by it. And I... <laughs> That there, there is a period of of going. Oh, oh no, oh groan. Now I yep. have to, yep. now I have to figure out what I think about this thing, and it's a little bit intimidating. But when Mike Trout signs a twelve year contract extension, you just you just jump right in. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah, we've all had lots of reps writing about Mike Trout. It's kind of our our favorite topic to write about and talk about. So. This one, I mean, usually we're writing about how he incredibly got better in some way. Now we're just talking about the fact that he has signed away the rest of his career just about to the Angels. And we're also talking about the terms of the deal. So I don't know what your piece focused on. We had multiple pieces at the ringer. So others took the Angels angle and I kind of took the the contract angle. But I think it's maybe not surprising if you know Mike Trout and have followed Mike Trout's career. But in the abstract, it would be sort of surprising that Mike Trout would so badly want to be an angel that he would sign away the next 12 years or, or 10 additional years. Given that he has not had a whole lot of success with 
the Angels building good teams around him. I think you wrote once that it was like, what did you call it? Like one of the the most embarrassing things in sports, like to to miss the playoffs repeatedly, even though you have Mike Trout. Because <laughs> did I something like that? Right? You you did that whole. Uh, it was, you called it like the like the greatest waste of talent, or I don't know, I, making yeah, you sound I, like I a probably, hot take artist or something. But no, I might have said that. <laughs> I, yeah, I did a piece that looked at how every franchise would be different had they drafted Mike Trout. In, yeah, I, I think this was after like his first four years, probably, and so it was a pretty simple conceit. I just added the WAR to uh, to each team's seasons for all those years, uh, and then subtracted the WAR of of whatever player they had drafted in, instead of Mike Trout. And um, yeah, it was boy, yeah, you make it sound <laughs> like something else, but yeah, uh, my recollection is that basically like. Uh, Every team would have made more multiple playoff series that they otherwise wouldn't have, except for the Angels. For like the Angels were the one team that there would have been no change if they hadn't drafted him. Like mm-hmm. they would have missed the playoffs every year that they did miss the playoffs, which is all of them but one uh, without Mike Trout. And they yep. would have made the playoffs the year that they did make the playoffs anyway. They would have won the division anyway because they won that division by like more than nine wins or whatever. Uh, And they presumably could have been swept by the Royals anyway. And so uh, just by a weird quirk of of numbers, it was um, the Angels were the one team that had 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 absolutely zero use for Mike Trout whatsoever in that time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's still true. Well, I guess technically, yeah, it's still (laughs) true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But but that was just a little that was a math problem. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I don't think there's any denying that Mike Trout has been an an incredible blessing for the Angels as a franchise player, keeping them certainly keeping them relevant in in multiple pennant races, keeping them credible. I mean they go into every season with with some playoff hopes. They it's not Mm -hmm. like they're unable to sell season tickets because nobody believes this team could possibly make the playoffs they always look like credible contenders even this year they're probably what are they projected to win like 84 games or something like that which would not be true if they didn't have mike trout but mike trout is also incredibly beloved he uh, i assume that's true for for many superstars in their cities but trout is in a lot of ways the perfect franchise player he's he's really fun on a local level i know that people complain that he's not fun enough on a national level but on a local level he's really incredibly fun he's very visible he interacts with a lot of people he has a temperament that is uh fun to be around every day if you're a fan Mm -hmm. and he does incredible things on the field and i think that i think i'm always trying to push myself and others to appreciate all the ways that you can be a successful team in this sport without winning the world series and certainly the angels have have had a very disappointing seven years especially after a decade where they were perennial playoff team but they've probably had as much fun as you can have in that time with the lack of success that they've had i do think that there is a a little bit of a sadness has crept in though where you see this team not just as an as an an 84 win team or an 80 win team or a 76 win team but a a 76 win team with trout and an 84 win team with trout and it just yeah. feels like worse that they're wasting this mm-hmm. uh, and it's even more so because of otani now and it's kind of even more so because it came after that huge press conference worthy signing of albert Pujols. um mm-hmm. and there's uh there's a kind of a 
tragic cursedness to it all that I think that would would mostly go away if they make a couple playoffs in the next six years or something like that, which I yeah. think they, they probably will. In retrospect, I don't think that this will look be looked back at as such a, a wasteland of, of Angels baseball. At the moment, though, it, it is somewhat of a threat. Yeah. Well, there's no mystery about why the Angels want to, to keep Mike Trout, but it's somewhat more mysterious why Mike Trout seems to feel such a attachment and, and loyalty to the Angels. I mean, I understand why he feels an attachment. They drafted him, and he's only ever played for the Angels, and it's natural to, to feel some sort of bond there. But from afar, I can't tell what it is exactly that the Angels have done to endear themselves to Trout because any team would treat Mike Trout pretty well, I would think, given how good he is and his personality. He's just, uh, he's exactly what you want. He is the model baseball player in, in every possible way. So what is it about the Angels or his tenure with this team that makes him so determined to extend it? Because sometimes he'll say, like, all he cares about is winning. That's the the number one priority for him. And putting everything else aside, the Angels have done a a pretty lousy job of winning with Mike Trout. He's done everything. He's held up his end of the bargain. There's nothing more he could have done to help the Angels win. But they have failed to win with him. They have failed to surround him with a good enough roster. They've been good enough to not be embarrassing. It would be really hard to be a terrible team with Mike Trout. But when you start with a... 8-10 to win player who for much of that time was very affordable it's really kind of inexcusable not to to make the playoffs more than this as we were just saying so what is it because like the first year that Mike Trout had his contract renewed I remember it was for the minimum amount right and I don't know whether he said anything, but I think his agent at the time was somewhat vocal uh, about that being just a you know an indignity or or a wrong that was being done against Mike Trout. That is what just about every team does to its good young players. But that happened, and people wondered, oh, is this going to keep Mike Trout from signing an extension? Then they did renew him for more than they had to one time after that. Like they gave him a million dollars instead of half a million dollars or whatever it was, as if that's uh, some some grand gesture. And then they extended him the first time for, you know, like a, a good amount of money, but way less than he probably deserved or could have commanded if he had waited a little longer. So what is it that the Angels have done to make Mike Trout just forswear any other teams? Well, let me give you four four answers, four different kind of responses to that. First of all, the first response is I would not presume to tell you. I think that uh, to some degree, I don't want to act like I know more than I do. And who knows, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that particularly it's hard to know what the interpersonal relationships that he has with the organization are. I think they're very yeah. important to him. I think I know that like there I've heard stories of, of him, particularly when he was younger, uh, really connecting with non-uniform staff in the organization and like, you know, sitting next to like assistants on the bus or like really connecting with people whose names you never hear that aren't even on the masthead. And those relationships might be might be important to him. It's it's I'm not saying they are. Uh, I'm giving you, though, an example of how it's it's very hard to know just what it's like for him to go to work every day and how fulfilling it is for him to be around the people he is. And that, that might be a, a factor. And and he also is very close to, to Albert Pools, uh, according to 
to both all reporting that we've seen as well as just watching him. If you just watch him in the dugout uh, or if you watch him at Angels games, uh, he's he's very close to Albert Pujols. And Albert Pujols is yeah. a, uh, a huge figure in well, Major League Baseball history. He didn't have to sign for 10 more years <laughs> to, to stay close to Albert Pujols. No, like, like what? Albert's got Albert's what, gonna eight, be there. eight or more, eight, eight <laughs> nine years? Oh, yeah, 14 years? How many more years has Albert signed? He signed through 2053, is it? But, yeah. like, you know, he's. it seems to me, it seems uh, that he is personally comfortable around the people he's at work with, yeah. which is, is nothing. I think that to just interrupt, I think one, interrupt myself. <laughs> <laughs> one of the uh, things that I think is somewhat interesting about this is that this deal, this extension comes with a brand new manager and he's committing to at least some large number of years, probably under a new manager who he hasn't gone through the grind with. And I think it, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it sort of says something about it's almost like he's betting on himself to get along with people. Well, that's the thing. It's it's not like Mike Trout doesn't seem like he's a hard guy to get along with or that like he would have a hard time finding friends wherever he goes. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to discount whatever relationships he's developed with the Angels. He's been with them a long time, and I'm sure that matters, but... Other teams have nice people too. <laughs> he could mm-hmm. he could make new friends. He could expand his social circle. I I don't know. It, it just uh, I mean, if he's happy where he is, and evidently he is, then I guess you might say, well, why mess with this? I I like this. <laughs> he doesn't seem like he's that hard a person to please. Like he's he likes where he is, and he likes his life, and so he wants that life to continue, which is kind of nice. It's just uh, I don't know. I can't figure out. I guess it is just like he likes people there more so than they did this specific thing. And unless there's some behind the scenes gesture that we don't know about that is entirely possible. Yeah, but like it's like you're like your family, right? You you grow up and you, you, you know, you like your childhood home. You like your mom's cooking. You like your cousins. You grew up with them. It's not that they're all special. It's that you that you yeah. became very comfortable with them. And so whoever, sure, probably whoever he had been drafted by, he would have uh, fit right in and, and had a great time. It's not necessarily that the Angels did anything special any more than yeah. it's that your childhood home was was a <laughs> you know particularly comfortable home. It just is where like, you're comfortable. Yeah. It's like when people ask me if I liked my college, for instance, I'll say like, yeah, I, I liked it, but... I probably would have liked any other college I looked at. They were they were all good. I don't know. Yeah, I, and you didn't change college between <laughs> your you know first and second semesters of junior year. Like you, that's true. You knew you knew what you liked in yeah. the cafeteria and and so on. You had your friends. I liked it for four years, maybe not for twenty years. Cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, I think those were two. I think I actually just gave you two responses in one. One was that I wouldn't presume to know. Uh, and I think the second one was the interpersonal relationship. The mm-hmm. third thing is you, who has failed him? And I think that you could look around if you're Mike Trout and say that, yeah, the Angels have failed to get me to the postseason. But I think it's a little bit harder to say who has failed and where they failed. They have invested a lot in this team. They have continually tried to put good teams around him. And a lot of the things that happened um, that have kept them out of the postseason, I would say that they very easily could have gone the other way. For instance, we talked about this. I wrote about this. We've talked about this uh, probably five or six years ago because he has been signed forever now. But when Albert Pujols got signed, 
uh, he immediately became, more or less, immediately became overpaid for what the angels were doing and soon became a burden. And you could you could say that, sure, we foresaw that by year seven or year eight, he would be a burden. And you could say that over the course of the deal, it might not have been a good buy. But nobody expected Albert Pujols' value to have have in the first season and and do so again in the second season and for him to almost immediately become league average or worse. And the same with Josh Hamilton. It was an overpay, but nobody, nobody that winter was saying, I think Josh Hamilton is the worst player in baseball. And so if you're Mike Trout, you see a, an owner that has gone out and gotten big stars. He was, I bet you anything, Mike Trout was really excited when they signed some of those stars like Josh Hamilton uh, and Albert Pujols. They've continued to add, they they went out and traded for Angelton Simmons. They went out and traded for Justin Upton. They signed uh, Zach Cozart last offseason. I mean, they they are yeah, going. They, they had a really exciting offseason last yeah, time. Exactly, just, Zach Cozart's yeah. another example. Like Zach Cozart was was really good in 2017. I think he was like, I think he was like the third or fourth free agent on Keith Law's top 50 last offseason. And then mm. he's by just how things go sometimes, he's immediately much worse and much more hurt. And so I think that I, I think that Mike Trout maybe deserves some credit for seeing this team not as a failed experiment in anything and just that they've they it hasn't worked out. Things have gone bad. Some of their pitchers who were really good have have gotten hurt and stayed hurt in cursed ways. And so I don't know who he would take it out on if if that makes sense. Um, yeah. and and furthermore, if you're looking forward, it's not they're not a they're not a scorched earth franchise right now. They have a mm-hmm. uh, they have a they they have built a really good farm system now. They have gotten some of the money off the books. They have some good players around. They have Mike Trout around, <laughs> which is pretty good. Yeah. And you're talking about 12 years. I I have a hard time thinking that there aren't four to eight good years ahead for the Angels in that 12 year time period. Yeah, it's just right. I, I, think I have that's... one more, by the way. That's only the third. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I, I do think the Angels are better positioned now. That was Michael Bauman's angle in his piece for the Ringer that the, the Angels are finally ready to not waste Mike Trout because of the other talent that they've assembled. But I think it's sort of strange because we just don't know that much about Mike Trout, at least compared to what we know about other superstars and celebrities, or at least we don't think we do. We don't know whether there just isn't that much to know about Mike Trout or or whether he just doesn't really share it with us. And so all we see about him is like, okay, he likes to win. Well, he hasn't won with the Angels, and we know that he likes weather, so the worst place to be is Anaheim, and we know that he really likes the Eagles and uh, and Millville and the East Coast, and so all of these things seem like in some way rejections of the, the only things that we know that Mike Trout actually likes, which is why it sort of seems strange not that he might be open to staying with the Angels, but that he is so eager to stay with the Angels that he's just going to bypass free agency for his entire career. He's going to sign away the rest of his career or his productive years, two years before he has to, before he would have reached free agency. I mean, it wouldn't have hurt 
to get to free agency and say, well, I'm still leaning toward the Angels if they want to bring me back, but I'll listen. I'll see what other teams tell me or whatever they're willing to to pay me, and, and we'll see where their competitive situations are come 2021 and, and whether the Angels actually have put a good team around me or whether they're still trying and failing to, and if so... I'd better get going. I'd better, by that point, he'll be 29 and he'll be running out of chances to make good and and win the World Series. So I don't know. It it just, he's made a good deal of money already with the first extension. So it's not as if he has to secure his financial future. It's already pretty secure and he's as dependable a player as there is ever, essentially. So it's not like the typical early career extension where it's like, well, I'd better get something or I might end up with nothing, which is why it it seems like this was less imperative than it might otherwise have been. Man, I will have you know that there is a 30% chance of rain between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. in Southern (laughs) California tonight. So don't don't knock our weather, all right? (laughs) The last thing, which I think uh, will entirely rebut everything you've said. Uh, Not really. I think uh, I wrote a piece for Baseball Prospectus when he signed his extension in 2014, and I feel like it's true. I've thought it true ever since, and I think it's still true now, which is that other than being incredibly good at baseball, the one of the defining things about Mike Trout's career is that he is no drama. He mm-hmm. doesn't want drama. He doesn't court drama. He wants to avoid drama. I think that he has been masterful at having no enemies. Yep. Um, and I think that to some degree, he is playing for his legacy uh, as much as anything else. And so in that sense, I think speculating here, but I think that he sees value in his career to having continuity, to being a one-team guy. And I think he sees an avoidance of drama in A, not uh, changing teams, uh, and B, not going to free agency or even getting really close to free agency with the Angels. Artie Moreno has been a little bit temperamental with free agents in the past. He doesn't like to negotiate a lot of times with free agents. He likes to just give a number, and if they don't take it, then he walks out. Uh, figuratively speaking, well, literally, I told the story uh, in the extension of what I'm going to get some details wrong here, but of the Tory Hunter pursuit, which is basically he met Tory Hunter in a Del Taco and gave Tory Hunter an offer and said, like, you have 40 minutes or something like that, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, like kind of sort of weird stuff. And I think that they uh, that by doing it this way, he avoids, you know, basically having drama with the angels and by uh, not changing teams he avoids some of the backlash that players especially Mm -hmm. superstars get whenever they do change teams it's not a fair backlash uh and we don't i i think that it's mike trout's choice of whether he wants to do it this way or not but it does seem consistent with the way that he has he has acted in public and the choices he's made in his career that he has his priorities and one of his priorities is to avoid drama and to have a particular type of career i think it my guess is that it could have been any of a dozen teams that drafted him uh, in 2009 yeah and it it happened to be the angels and so here he is he's happy Mm -hmm. no it's definitely consistent with his prior behavior it it seems like he does not really place much importance on maximizing his earnings. If he had, he could have gone about things much differently. And 
I I want Mike Trout to be happy and productive. And uh, if this is what makes him happy and productive, that's great. It's just a another way in which he is different from most players. I think obviously he's different in that he's way better than all of them. But I think a lot of this is different too. I I don't think many players of his stature would have acted exactly the way that he's acted with these two extensions here, at least in the specific situation that he was in with the Angels. It would be different if they'd won a couple rings or something. But as it is, I I think this is another way in which he's kind of an outlier. I don't know if it makes me respect him more. I I wouldn't respect him less if he was Mike Trout, except that he went to free agency and tried to get every last dollar. That would be fine too. Mm -hmm. But it makes him different. And I like when players are different because different is interesting. And this will be part of his legacy. I I don't want to like... The other thing is that probably part of his legacy will be like glorifying him for not caring so much about making money. If if anyone can accept that this isn't that much money for Mike Trout, which I know is is difficult given the dollar figures involved, but like you know he's gonna go down as the the lunch pail player who showed up every day and he just wanted to play baseball and uh, didn't want to worry about all the other stuff, which is true. I, I think I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think that is who Mike Trout has been, but like I guess I also wouldn't want that necessarily to be. The model, like aspire to be Mike Trout in many ways, in how great he is on the field, in his work ethic, in his avoidance of bad behavior and and controversy, I I suppose. But you know, you could be just as great and also be wired differently when it comes to handling financial decisions. I would just dispute. I don't think he will go down as a lunch pail player. I think he will go down as a lunch box player. He will be the Alf <laughs> okay. lunch box player. <laughs> particularly he uh he's uh you know he has managed to maintain the the kid vibe longer than most yeah. players have managed to maintain the kid vibe just to correct a couple of details tory hunter did not go to the del taco but when he called the angels front office they were at a del taco okay. and already gave him three hours <laughs> okay. uh before the offer would That's be pulled pretty generous yeah he, uh, apparently this is not my reporting on this one but apparently when they were pursuing matt garza i'm gonna quote whatever i quoted <laughs> the last i don't know what article <laughs> i quoted the last time uh but here's garza i was on vacation with my wife and i didn't want to be disturbed and it was like here it is we'll pull it in a certain number of hours i didn't have a chance to respond so i just said whatever it is what it is It was an offer. And I said, I'm on vacation. I'm not thinking about baseball, dude. Me and my wife are enjoying ourselves. So they did not sign Matt Garza. (laughs) So it seems like there's a a lot to say about this just because it's the the defining player of this period of baseball, maybe the best player ever. And now we kind of know what the rest of his career is going to look like, at least a lot more than, than we did this morning. So it is really fascinating. And I guess we can talk about the dollars, I don't know. I, I focused on that in my piece because that was kind of my angle. But I, I think that, you know, everyone's going to look at this. Everyone is reporting it as record contract, record contract. And 
technically it is a record contract and whether you say it's a a 12 year 426.5 or a 10 year 360 extension on top of the two years he already had coming however you you frame it it is technically a record and his 36 million dollar average annual salary during those 10 additional years is for now at least also a record but like Barely, really barely in both cases. I think, you know, Zach Cranky's making $34 million right now. If you adjust for inflation, the, the A-Rod deals are bigger than this deal. If you look at the Giancarlo Stanton extension almost five years ago now, that is not drastically different from this one, given the, the relative strengths of those two players. They were both two years away from free agency when they signed their deals. Stanton was younger, but he also got an opt-out, etc. I mean, Trout is just not making nearly as much money here as he could have, or at least as he deserves, and maybe what he deserves and what he could have made are two different numbers just because he's Mike Trout and it's it's almost inconceivable that someone could be paid what he actually is worth. But for anyone looking at this and, and saying, whoa, new record, mind blown, how can a baseball player be worth 360 or 426.5 or whatever, this is a, a bargain. It's Mike Trout, is it's he's so good that it's hard to get your head around how much better he is at baseball than everyone else. And so it's also hard to get your head around how much more money he deserves than everyone else if you're being paid purely by war or whatever. Oh, yeah. And so it's wildly uh, <laughs> it's wildly low. Um, yeah. I have not read your piece. You have not read mine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I said he should have gotten a billion. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I did. And I think I, I think it holds up. I certainly think that you could double it without it being, it, it would only look weird because there isn't a comparable deal yeah. out there for, there, there isn't a comparable player um, yeah. out there. And because we have a hard time in all things um, adjusting for inflation, but mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, he's a part of the piece that I wrote, did the war math, because you got to do the war math, Ben, mm-hmm. and I did it. Yep. Uh, and he, if you look at his 10-year Pakoda projection, yep. uh, you get up to about a billion dollars. Yeah, his, uh, his Pakoda projection, so for the next 10 years, including this year, it is 80.3 wins above replacement player. And the second best projected player over that same frame of time is Mookie Betts, who is a little more than a year younger than Trout, and he's 13 wins above replacement player below Trout. If you go by Zips, which Dan Simborski passed along to me, Trout is the numbers are a little lower because I, I think Zips prices in more injury risk, but he's. 10 war ahead of the the next best player who is Francisco Lindor. It's kind of incredible that the gaps are so big given what he has already accomplished and given the fact that he is going to turn 28 this year, this August. And you would think that, I mean, by 28, most players are at their peaks, past their peaks even, and Trout could be at or past his peak. And yet the next 10 years, the the post-peak Trout is still probably way better than anyone else, including guys who are going to spend that entire time in their peak period or, or just about. So it's really just kind of mind-boggling when you consider that he's already, I mean, name your favorite fun fact about how incredible he is, and that's all in the past. He's already a, like a 
past the average Hall of Fame center fielder, etc. And yet he has a, a whole Hall of Fame career to come in the next decade, which is what the Angels are, are getting here. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's not it's not a certainty that he is past his peak either. No, nope. I, I think he's keeps that, getting better. So yeah, on a per game basis, I think last year might have been his best year. Mm-hmm. And on a per game basis, the year before, before he injured himself, was on pace to be his best year ever. And, uh, you know, he's not old. Yeah. And of course, because he's signing this deal two years before free agency, you can't directly compare it to Harper and Machado, for instance, because you look at the the totals there, 300 for Machado and 330 for Harper. And this is essentially tacking on 360 for Trout. It's like not all that different, even though Trout is as good as Harper and Machado combined. It's not a direct comparison because those guys were signing for right now and Trout is signing for 2021 and beyond. And there is some chance, probably lower for him than for anyone else, but some chance that he suffers some sort of career altering injury in the next couple of years or it just ages prematurely. It's it's hard to imagine that happening, but there's some risk here that is priced in. So what he would get as a free agent today is a little bit different from what he would get as a free agent in two years. But mm-hmm. even so, <laughs> there should be such a big gap between what Harper and Machado got and what Trout got. They are not comparable players. They should not have comparable contracts. And I think if Trout had waited it's hard to say what he would have gotten because I, I just I can't realistically imagine anyone going above like 600 or something because it it would just be so out of line with all previous contracts and usually that's how you figure out what you're going to pay someone is well this team paid that guy this much and this guy is that much better or worse than that guy so we'll just adjust it slightly up or down from there and that just doesn't really work with trout because he is incomparable and unparalleled and so there is no contract comp that really works here so it looks arresting to see 400 something and so if you start talking about 500-something, 600-something, there are a lot of owners that will probably just balk at that because you're talking about one player taking up like a third of your payroll at least below the, the competitive balance tax, and that's a lot of risk to tie up in one player, and it's just unprecedented, and it would be hard for anyone to convince a team to do that. But they should do that. He's <laughs> he's worth that. Yeah. He's worth more than that. So I wonder whether he is aware of that. Like, do you think that he thinks I'm leaving hundreds of millions of dollars on the table here and I just don't care? Or do you think he doesn't realize just what his potential earning power is or should be? I that's a good question. I would I think that to some degree he's not he's not leaving that much on the table because like you say, mm-hmm. I don't think that a player of his skill would get what he's worth. I think yeah. that there's there's a cap. And my guess, uh, my guess is like if he'd made it to free agency, maybe 450. Two years from now. Two years from now. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. 450. On top of the, the 66. The 60 that, that he yeah. has, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so do, I, um, I don't know. I I would guess that he would guess that he would get about as much as I would have guessed that he would get. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, so that is definitely leaving some money on the table, um, yeah. but uh, without having to live the next two years with any of the uncertainty at all. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe four hundred. Maybe he would have thought four hundred, and mm-hmm. to get three sixty 
feels like a, a, a decent uh, discount to, to give up in order for the, uh, to resolve it right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to, I don't know. That's a good question, Ben. I <laughs> like, you know, you heard 400 million talked about with Bryce Harper for yep. a couple of years before he hit free agency. And it's, it's hard to know whether a person would look at that at what Bryce Harper ultimately got, which is 335 over 13 years, which is a very long time, and say, well, yeah, that's because he had a down year. Uh, I don't know if Trout's looking at his defensive metrics. Or mm-hmm. if you would say, oh, wow, that's something something about free agency. It's it's not, it's not nothing is guaranteed. Uh, mm-hmm. Or if you would look at it and think, well, yeah, Bryce Harper wasn't as good as I am, or even close. Yeah. So I don't know. I yeah. Like I said, I gave you my numbers, 400 to 450. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a discount. If there's anybody who, well, I don't know if there's a loser in this deal, but but do you think this affects Mookie Betts? Do you think there's now a cap is what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you think now it will be impossible to say that mm-hmm. you should get paid more than 400 and whatever million dollars over whatever number of years? Yeah, I, I wrote a little bit about that. I'm kind of uncomfortable about the idea that players have a duty to other players and that they need to make the most they possibly can because what they make affects what other future players will make. I mean, I think that is a a nice thing if you have that sort of solidarity and take that into account, but your primary loyalty should probably be to yourself and your family. And so if Trout felt like this was the, the best move for him and them, then I understand why he did it. But it really probably does change things. It seems like there would be consequences here because it does set the ceiling, I think, because how can anyone else argue that they deserve more than Mike Trout? They can't really argue that they're better than Mike Trout. It might be several years before anyone can convincingly claim that they're better than Mike Trout and deserve more than he makes on a purely performance basis. And so Mookie Betts or whoever comes along and says, I want more than that. And the other person on the other side of the table says, you think you're better than Mike Trout? I don't think so. I don't know that that's a a negotiation ender, but he's setting the ceiling here at very close to what the ceiling already was. And so there's just no no room to expand. Like if in an alternate universe where Mike Trout gets paid like 50 million a year or something, then other players can make 30 and 35 and 40 and 45. And now Mike Trout is making 36, which is like what the best player players essentially already were making so it it's not like he's raising the ceiling at all yeah i don't know if that's how those conversations go though i mean it yeah. it doesn't matter <laughs> like mookie bet's asking for, for mookie bet's agent i should say asking mm-hmm. a team's gm for money is not a replacement for war in right. measuring player value i mean yeah. mookie bet says i want this money because i want this money and you would pay me this money if you think i'm worth it and yeah. every every other detail is totally irrelevant but um, a lot of contracts this size come yes, down to yes, talking right. to the owner or something, and the owner's going to say, well, yeah. they got Mike Trout for this much. So. Well, and they all, these, <laughs> these contracts all tend to rhyme with each other so much that you have to yeah. figure that there is a lot of that going on, a lot of player comparison going on. Mm-hmm. And so it might. I, I wouldn't be able to say one way or the other. You could very easily imagine it not being relevant at all for Mookie Betts in his conversation with one team that really, really wants him. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine the other. The other thing is that after a few years, Mike Trout's contract will no longer be current in the same way. Like, Mm -hmm. I I mean, I don't think that 
Mike Hampton had to argue that he was better than, I, I'm going to just throw out, I, these might not work, but I don't know if Mike Hampton had to argue that he was better than Greg Maddox to get more than Greg Maddox was getting in a deal signed seven years earlier. Yeah, that's true. Although it just seems like the the growth has stagnated and spending in free agency has stagnated. And so in the past, there was like a steady progression where you would have the top earner making more year after year, more or less. And now it, it seems like the, the cap has kind of been set. And so if you adjust for inflation, at least there are lots of people who have made more than Mike Trout will be making, at least on a, an annual basis. So I don't know. I, I, in a sense, I, I guess this kind of does do a disservice to other players. I don't know that that's something I would criticize Mike Trout for not factoring more heavily into his uh, calculations. But I guess if I were the agent of another really talented client who might be negotiating sometime soon, and it's not even just like, what's the effect for Mookie Betts, but what's the effect for your generic free agent who maybe the rising tide lifts all boats and the tide did not really Mm -hmm. rise here. So Mark Teixeira said today that he did not think that it would, he, he was looking at it from the other direction. He did not think that Mike Trout's contract would have, would set a new, uh, set a new bar that it wouldn't raise anybody else's, which is kind of the opposite conversation that we're having, but he didn't think that it would raise anybody else's salaries because Mike Trout is, is so, uh, unique. He is mm. nobody else can really say I'm like Mike Trout, and so I want to be paid like Mike Trout, which arguably is not true of Mookie Betts. Mm. But putting that aside, you could, under that thinking, you could maybe argue that it's not as important for Mike Trout to max out because since he is unique, since nobody else is going to be able to use him as a comp, he's not going to pull anybody else up to whatever he were to sign at. Mm. So that's one possible way that that this would work psychologically and economically. Yeah. I I would yeah, I would fear that it would go the other way though and just say yeah. that it creates a, an insurmountable barrier for yes, for anybody else. Yeah, I think it's more of a a depressive effect than than the absence of an inflationary effect maybe. I don't know. But all right, is there anything else that that we have to say about this contract? I was was not really expecting to uh hear this news today uh, there had been some like discussion of discussions so we knew that there was some ongoing conversation there and trout had said that he only wants it to happen over the off season or something so it, if it didn't happen now it would only happen next off season i guess or otherwise it wouldn't happen at all so there was some pressure to make this happen but I don't know. I, I guess I, I underestimated, again, Mike Trout's agreeableness and, and willingness to just want to stay where he is and keep doing what he's doing. So, uh, well, good for him. Are the odds greater uh, than 50% or worse that he wins a World Series before he retires? So you mean not greater or, or worse relative to what they were before, but Correct. just, right, just right. Uh, purely? Yeah. Well, he's got about... Uh, what 12 years left or well, he's, something. he doesn't he has 12 years till he's 38 and yeah, dakota has him as a six win still... player at 36 so yeah I if mean, you there, if you knock one win Willie down Mace a year that Hank play, Aaron or something right. he, he could easily play to 42 43 yeah he could but he won't be a such an impact player at that point but i don't know i mean uh just by chance alone if you give him 15 more years then uh does that mean he has a 50 50 shot at winning a world series Sort of. Is that bad math? Um, I 
don't think that's good math. No, it's probably not. <laughs> but uh, And the chances of winning a World Series are not distributed evenly based on the team. Yeah. But I mean, I guess I would say that over the next 15 years, the Angels have as good a chance to win a World Series as any team except, let's say, the Yankees and the Dodgers, basically. Well, at your... Jump ahead three years and start start the math there. Right. And yeah, I would say because that that's true. Yeah. After the next two or three years, there's like no predictiveness based on how good a team is right now. Yeah. There might be some predictiveness based on the market size or right. the payroll or something. So, so, so yes, if you were talking about Mike Trout being on a team that has one of the biggest payrolls in baseball and Mike Trout, yes. um, then they're in a pretty good spot. Right. Yeah. And, and a good farm system right now. Yeah. So, I, the odds are, uh, I don't know exactly what the odds are, but the odds are, are not bad. <laughs> the odds are about as, as good as, as they would be anywhere else almost. Ben, I've got to make this bet right now. <laughs> Is this like your Bryce Harper will hit 50 homers bet? <laughs> we'll, figure, we'll figure it out later. <laughs> All right. So we will take a quick break now and we'll be back with Jake Kaplan to talk about the Astros. The thing that gets to me. So we are joined now by Jake Kaplan, who covers the Astros for The Athletic and is available right now because the Astros were rained out on Tuesday afternoon, which freed up some time for him. Hey, Jake, how's it going? Hey, how are you guys doing? We're doing well. My first question for you about the Astros is they've lost a lot of brain power lately. They lost a lot of front office people. They've lost a lot of coaches. I saw at one point, I think Richard Justice tweeted that Jeff Luno had said that like one in five vacancies this offseason on other teams was filled by an Astros employee. I don't know exactly how he calculated that, but obviously... (laughs) Astros front office people have gone on to be GMs and to work with those GMs, and there's just this great exodus of Astros intellectual talent, which is kind of a compliment, but also kind of a challenge. So is that a risk? Is that a threat? Was there a a single biggest loss, do you think? Yeah, well, first of all, I think I should probably... If I was good at my job, fact check that 20% number. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it seems like a daunting <laughs> task, though, so I haven't done that. But he has said that on a couple occasions. Yeah, no, I think it's a big deal, obviously, losing. I mean, they lost a lot of people the previous year, too, after winning the World Series, but that was more on the coaching side. This is more coaching and front office. And, you know, Sig Meidel and, and Mike Fast are the two biggest names that people know about, a lot of them from Astro Ball, the book, or just, you know, Mike Fast worked for BP. So, you know, to say which one's bigger, I don't know. But, you know, I think the biggest thing, the Astro, how it affects the Astros is now that the Orioles and the Braves have, you know, all this information and, and know how to do the same things the Astros have been working on for seven years. And, and you know, it'll probably allow them to, to catch up a little, you know, obviously the Astros have had start, but start to catch up. Right. Yeah, Michael Elias, too, obviously, who maybe was right. not... Not so well known, but, you know, just as important, presumably. Yeah, yeah. He ran 
their draft really the whole time under Jeff Luno, you know, and the last couple of years, he also ran international and they went internal to fill both those roles, those leadership roles. So they, they kind of, Jeff Luno also seems to take a lot of pride in developing people in the, in their system, uh, in their front office to kind of be the next person in line. But when you lose that much, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see how it affects them this year. I, I just want to, I, I know you just answered that question and uh, I'm just going to re-ask it a little bit because that question has come up on a few, I think a few team previews this year and previous years. And we always sort of take it as a given that brain drain hurts teams. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to re- re-ask it just because I, I want to get a little bit more of your perspective. There are, uh, we also hear about how there are a thousand applicants for every open position and it's not as though the Astros have, um, you know, 15 empty positions now. They got to to go get a whole bunch of other people from other organizations. And so, uh, uh, how I, I like again, I know you already answered this, but I'm I'm curious how big of a deal do you think it is? Does it change things in a significant way? Does it change things in a way you you notice? Is it uh, is the is it a lack of continuity? Are the people who left truly special and irreplaceable? Uh, is it just a, a sort of a blip in uh, in in keeping everything running, or what? Well, my cop out answer is these guys are so secretive in their front office. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think we just kind of assume it's a huge loss because these people had high ranking positions for so long in their organization. But you're right; they they were able to replace Mike Fast with you know, a, a well-regarded person from another organization, the Dodgers. So, yeah, I mean, I think all of that remains to be seen. It's it's tough to really analyze these things, especially because each person left for different reasons, for different teams, for different positions, and they all did different things for the Astros. And even with the Astros, their jobs evolved over the years. I mean, take Sig Meidel, for example. He he was their director of decision sciences, and he was then he was a special assistant and became, went from you know, the data side a lot more to the player development side the last two years, even going into uniform the last two years. So the roles evolve so much that it's it's hard to know, you know, exactly the impact and what they're losing and how big each each loss is, if that makes sense. Yeah, there is a, a theory, a sort of management theory that um, part of what helps spur innovation in, in various industries is that employees actually do move from firm to firm and that if you have a lot of like non-compete clauses or you make it really hard for uh, people to change from one company to another, uh, it actually can kind of repress innovation within the industry and that when they're able to move about, they essentially they kind of take they both well they take their secrets with them that's one thing but they also just take their experience having tried to work through various problems at their previous job so i wonder if i mean theoretically i wonder if it might actually be a a benefit that they get this infusion of intelligence from various uh, other other organizations it's possible but they didn't hire a ton from what i understand most of their like the replacements were internal. They did hire, like I mentioned, Essen Hokari from the Dodgers, uh, who was an analyst for the Dodgers, to be their new R&D director. But in terms of assistant GM, they just went from two to one. And, you know, Sig Sig Meidel's role didn't really get filled. Um, He had such a unique role. And, you know, new people are leading the draft in international, but they were already there. So it's it's maybe with the Astros, it's less so because they're not hiring a, a ton outside the organization. 
Do you think there's a particular quality that other teams are looking for? Is there a reason that they want to copy the Astros? What do they want to replicate? Because obviously the Astros have been successful. They won a World Series. They're a really good team. But is there a, a specific trait that other teams are, are hoping to ape from the Astros? I think it's, if I were to guess, it's probably just, you know, the, the use of, of analytics and technology, you know, TrackMan specifically, that they've been doing for years that other teams are probably, you know, just starting to or, or a couple of years into. They've been doing, Astros have been doing it for, I don't know, four or five years already. So they have that head start on how best practices, how to use it, how to, what, what does it mean? What are they mm-hmm. supposed to be looking for? And, you know, that's on the front office side. On the coaching side, they also teach their coaches to, to coach with it. So I assume that would be part of it too. You see Jeff Albert, who was their assistant hitting coach, go to the Cardinals to be their hitting coach. And Doug White, who was their their bullpen coach, is now the Angels pitching coach. And those guys used to work in the Astros farm system as coaches and have kind of been there through this whole, you know, they've had so much success developing with with use of TrackMan and, and the Edgertronic cameras and everything. So they all know how that works. So I think it's it's probably just how far in front they were with all the the new age stuff and and they want to implement it to their their systems. A, a lot of what uh, the Astros do um on the heavily analytic side has been reported and Ben and Travis's book uh, goes deep on some of that stuff too. Do you have a sense that there are things that they do that are secret? Is it possible to keep secrets anymore? And are the Astros, have they been successful at keeping any secrets? Or is it mostly just about committing to certain things more than other teams have been willing to, or committing earlier than other teams have committed, or uh, simply executing those things better than other teams have been able to? I think a big part of it is the execution part of it, but I'm sure there are some things they've been able to keep secret that hopefully... Hopefully Ben uncovered in his book, uh, and or if not, hopefully hopefully I can uncover in the next few months. But you know they do have a small front office, uh, you know, so that makes it easier to keep secrets. And and I like I said, I, I do think a lot of it is the execution. They they because they have had so much practice with it relative to the other teams. I think they've been able to figure out what works and what doesn't, and kind of implement it uh, as they go. And now you know other teams are just you know trying to catch up. So we should talk about the non-front office related transactions that the Astros made this offseason. It was not an extremely active winter, but there's still some suggestion that maybe they're not completely done. Is there any possibility that they will be adding? Are they still talking to Dallas Keuchel? Or it's almost a separate question to ask about the pitching staff and how all of that shakes out because there's just so much depth there. They've seemed pretty content with with the team they have. You know, I would argue they they probably need another reliever, you know, or it were maybe if you sign a starter, you move Brad Peacock, who would be their fifth starter back to the bullpen. But, you know, every time Jeff Luno speaks to the media or he was on one of the, the team's radio show last week, he, he indicates that they're going into the season with this team. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously that can change with one phone call, but I, I'm not really expecting them to make another move before opening day. Yeah. And just because of some of the player development techniques we're talking about, there's just a, such a, a wealth of pitching talent in that system high level guys who are ready right now we've seen the Astros like last postseason they had to leave you know probably a better bullpen's worth of pitchers off of their playoff roster than other teams actually carried just because they had too many guys to fit onto one team so how does this staff shake out obviously Josh James had an injury here that affects things but they have this luxury of just kind of moving guys who were in the bullpen back to the rotation because they're perfectly capable of of holding those spots down too. Yeah, I, I think their staff, it's going to be really interesting to watch how it evolves over the season pitching-wise for them. I think 
you know, last year they had five guys basically the whole season. Uh, it wasn't until August where they, they missed, you know, a turn. Right. This year it's going to be much different. I think you're going to have a lot of turnover throughout the season, whether it's guys moving to and from the bullpen, whether it's prospects coming up, going down. You know, this there's looking to start with Verlander or Cole, obviously, at the top, and then you go Colin McHugh, who, who was in the bullpen last year, Wade Miley, who they signed uh, as a free agent, and Brad Peacock, you know, you could see any of those three in the bullpen by the end of the year. I don't think that would be a stretch to imagine, but they could also stick a starter. So you have them, you have Josh James, who's probably going to begin the year as like their multi-inning Chris Davinsky type guy. Now that Chris Davinsky's kind of regressed the last year or so, he's no longer Chris Davinsky. It's now Josh James as Chris Davinsky. But <laughs> yeah, so I, I think, and then, and then we didn't even get to the, the Forrest Whitley factor, which, you know, yeah. Top pitching prospect in baseball who will, who should be up if he's healthy uh, at some point in the year. So uh, just a lot of names, a lot of arms, um, and they could add more um, that that could contribute throughout the course of the year. That you know how their rotation and their bullpen look at the end of the year could look so different than it is now. I have uh, I have reached the point with the Astros where if they get a you know if they acquire a pitcher, I just assume that that pitcher is going to be a lot better three months from now than I I think he is right now. It seems like everybody that they have gotten has immediately gotten really uh, really good, and so like uh, you know is is it crazy that I have Wade Miley finishing second in Cy Young <laughs> voting this year? Maybe maybe it's crazy, but you know you just sort of get get used to this idea that they have figured out who to uh, to pursue and and they pursue them with a plan in place and they have figured out how to implement that plan for the pitcher to what degree uh, is this just a happy confluence of, of breakouts and to what degree do they really have um, you know the, the magic touch such that that maybe we should be um, putting it into projection systems. It's going to be weird when Wade Miley comes out the, the fourth game of the year throwing 98. <laughs> Spin rate's out of control. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a certain Indians pitcher will have something to say <laughs> if that happens. No, it's, I mean, they definitely are good at optimizing pitchers' strengths and weaknesses. You know, I think, I, I don't think it's coincidence, you know, and a lot of it's similar stuff, right? Like they have guys stop throwing their sinkers and start throwing their four-seamers more. Uh, they have guys, if you have a really good curveball, throw it more. In Miley's case, I think the cutter probably graded out really well on their track man evaluations. And, you know, I think the Brewers are good at this too. So I'm not sure how much different his pitch usage will be this year. He does throw a four-seamer. I'm sure he'll throw it. So I'm sure that usage will go up. He has started to reintroduce a slider that he didn't throw last year. So I'm sure that'll that'll obviously change things. But some of the tweaks are more, aren't as big. Like Garrett Cole, wasn't as drastic as Charlie Morton in terms of the pitch usage, but it was it was enough where it made a huge difference. And so Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander and Ryan Presley, I think are all examples of pitchers whose previous teams have come under criticism for uh, for them not being able to to shepherd them to these these levels. So is there any feeling that like it, it it's harder for them to call teams on the phone and ask about a pitcher without basically giving up the game? That's possible that that started last year. I haven't heard that yet, but they didn't really trade for any pitchers this offseason. So it's possible teams were scared off from that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a great look, right? If you're the team giving up the person and then they go on to, you know, completely revamp their, their arsenal or their usage and, and this happens and you had it the whole time, you, just, you know, so I, I'm not sure. 
So the other off-season addition, other than Miley, the big one, was Michael Brantley. And I'm really curious about this. I, I see how he fits on this team, but it's harder to see now how Kyle Tucker fits on this team. And I know Tucker didn't hit in his big league audition last year, but he hit really well at AAA. He remains a top 10, top 20 prospect this season. So does he fit on this team? Is he trade bait? Does he switch positions? What happens with Tucker? Well, he's going to start the season in AAA, and I wouldn't be surprised if he spent a decent amount of the season there because of the reason, the the, the dynamic you just mentioned. I, I mean, I, I think Michael Brantley will DH a decent amount also, and when he does, you could see Tony Kemp in left field, and then maybe later that's Kyle Tucker, and that's that's kind of his avenue to, to at-bats. But then that means Tyler White's crunched out. So they, they definitely have to figure out, and they will, based on you know performance over the year, the best nine hitters. But I, I think Brantley will DH you know, more than people might think, you know, which which opens up that, that outfield spot. So you don't think that the Brantley signing was any indication of a, a lack of confidence in Tucker? It was just Brantley is good right now and we need to be good right now? Well, I think it's it partially it is. You know, if Tucker, if they were confident in Tucker, they could have just had him, you know, be their opening day left fielder. But right. yeah, I think it, it it is in part, but I don't think that's, I think they also just wanted to add you know, another proven bat rather than have to, you know, rely on a rookie because you don't really know, you know, what you're going to get. Uh, they, they still seem to think Kyle Tucker's going to have a, a bright future ahead of him as, as the industry does with, with, you know, all the prospect lists. But I think with the group they have now and, you know, they're obviously in, in win now mode, they just didn't want to have to rely on a rookie. All right. So uh, Miley Brantley and the third acquisition was Robinson Gerinos and the Astros are a uh, team that has been thought of as one of the you know the framing teams the teams that have valued framing and Torino's was I think fourth from the bottom last year in framing they have Max Stassi who I think was number one and now they have Torino's and so do is I mean Torino's is more of a bat guy and more of an arm guy is this more that they think that this is an easy skill to teach is it more that they think that it's become a little bit more of an underrated uh, an overrated skill that they don't necessarily need to pursue or i forget what the third possibility was (laughs) (laughs) i think they like the value that they got him for and they think that they could get him to be good enough at it i don't know if they you know, it's a one-year deal. I don't know if they expect him to have a huge turnaround, but I think they saw little things that they could improve on there. Whether that happens obviously remains to be seen, but you're right. I mean, he's he was toward the bottom in not only framing, but throwing too. And so they're really relying on the bat there if, if those defensive stats don't improve. Yeah, you did a piece for The Athletic last month that was about the biggest questions facing the Astros, and it must have been pretty hard to come up with questions (laughs) because relative to most teams, the questions are just not (laughs) that scary, really, or, or important. So a lot of it was just kind of like... How do they fit all these good players on one team (laughs) and who doesn't fit on the roster? So who do you think ends up as the odd man or men out? Are people like Tony Kemp or Tyler White in trouble long term here? Longer term, yeah. I I think, you know, they're... They're going to carry an extra position player uh, on opening day just to keep all these guys. But I think at some point they're going to have to make a decision with one of them, whether that's Tony Kemp or Tyler White or Jake Marisnik. You know, especially with Kyle Tucker coming up, they have another prospect, Jordan Alvarez, who's kind of a DH left field type. You know, they, they're going to have to make decisions on some of their guys who are out of options, which White and Kemp are, 
or nearing that point. So I'm not sure. I think it's really going to depend on, you know, obviously performance. But yeah, you're right. They don't have a ton of questions. You know, I think right now the biggest ones are, are catcher. Uh, I think with Chirinos and Stasi, is that good enough? And, you know, their bullpen depth's not what it was last year, especially if, you know, Chris Davinsky hasn't had a great spring uh, after a, a really bad second half. If if he's not, you know, reliable, that that that's a big deal for them. They, uh, I mean, this team is outrageously good. They are projected to be the best team in baseball by Pakoda. They had a 109 win run differential last year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, And, uh, you know, they're like, they compose yourself. (laughs) Compose myself. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Uh, And, um, you know, they have the, they have fairly, they're, they're good. They're really, really good. Um, and they should be good for a long time. And all the things that have have gotten them here, besides the ability to lose a ton of games for four years in a row, but all the other things that have gotten them here uh, remain, you know, more or less here. So, what should concern an Astros fan? Uh, either, I mean, I'm not even going to say this year. It's not going to be this year. There's nothing to concern them this year. Uh, but what should concern them over the next few years, or what might concern the front office? What do they see? Do you think as uh, as any sort of obstacle to, you know, three, four, five, six great years ahead of them? Well, the question I get most from Astros fans is about, you know, when are they going to re- extend their players? Um, and they, you know, this was the first offseason. They they were hit by free agency really hard in terms of like a, a lot of guys at once. And it's going to be that way really every year now. So I think that's the biggest obstacle they face is, you know, can they keep these guys uh, long term? You know, Altuve is the only one they really locked up so far. So, you know, the, the right now, a lot of the questions are, are they going to how are they going to keep Verlander and Cole, you know, and Ryan Presley? And, and I think they have four relievers and four starters who are who are free agents at the end of the year. So that's going to be the big, big question. And then, you know, the next year, it's their entire outfield is free agents. So that's going to be the big overarching question that that kind of follows them as they keep going through this process are they do you think that this is an organization that's willing to spend 30 35 million dollars on a guy who's facing free agency or to go out and get a free agent or are they gonna really be committed to kind of shorter shorter deals pre-free agency deals mid-tier deals like the ones that they signed this offseason their model is definitely the latter you know, and that's where they've they've trended. Their their biggest free agent contract is is still Josh Reddick's fifty two million dollars from from two years ago. Uh, this front office, at least, and they haven't signed a starting pitcher on the free agent market for more than I think it's I think the highest was Scott Feldman at three for thirty two. So I think that's telling. You know, they they did extend Altuve. They did take on Verlander's deal. So I think you know it'll be inter- interesting to see if they stray a little bit from from that model. I mean, they're going to have to if they want to keep some of these players. So, will they will they do that, or will they stay disciplined and and follow this this you know plan they've they set forth? I'm not sure. One of the most interesting things about the Astros this offseason has been that their some of their players have been really vocal on labor issues. Colin McHugh, especially, and and Justin Verlander, uh, and and other assorted uh, tweets or comments here and there, and they really have it seems like been uh, leading the players' messaging about the free agent market. Um, you know, kind of, kind of dying, and that's interesting, and it's been interesting to watch. But somebody pointed out that it does come as the Astros have had a sort of notably quiet offseason. Uh, mm-hmm. They let three pretty good-sized free agents walk away, and and they signed you know three smaller free agents. And there's no real criticism, I don't think, of the Astros, partly because they have such a stacked roster and 109 
win run differential um, and partly because there's just nothing at all is pushing them uh, in the AL West right now. And and maybe, I don't know, maybe because they just won a World Series. And so there isn't any feeling like the Dodgers have where they have a, a hump to get over. But uh, you could sort of imagine, you could conspiracy theorize that McHugh and, and et al., are commenting on their own bosses in uh, unwillingness to to go out and push the market uh, at all. Do you think there's anything at all to that? It's a good conspiracy theory, uh, and and on top of that, like a big part of this is the teams trying to copy what the Astros did, right, in roster construction and building their team. So the Astros are kind of connected to this in in many ways. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, it's I don't think that they're going out and, and making these comments with that in in mind intended in their messages but it's it's all related right so as good as the esters have been they took a big hit in likability last year when they made the trade for roberto asuna do you think that they underestimated the backlash to that or or that luno did and do you think i mean it's hard to say if he had the opportunity to do it again would he do it i mean in a sense it worked out exactly the way that he wanted it to because Osuna came back and was good and the Astros made the playoffs and other than winning the World Series again, it all went according to plan. On the other hand, there was a, a big negative PR hit. So I, I wonder whether you think that came at all as a surprise to them or whether you think there is a real material cost to that or whether it was just a, a bunch of tweets that in the end didn't really hurt their bottom line. You know, it's a good question. I, I think you have to know that that's coming, right? I mean, you have to know. I don't see how you couldn't have expected that that backlash. And I think he did. I think they did. But yeah, I and I, I don't know if they would, you know, whether they would do it again or not. I, I, you know, I don't think that they, I don't think they were really caught off guard by that. You know, what what was your impression? Well, the way that his statement was worded, I mean, that was, uh, yeah. I don't know that there was a, a great defense for making that trade, but I think he opened himself up to even more backlash just by making some comment about a zero tolerance policy and then having to square that with having made that acquisition, which uh, they weren't forced to do. So that made it seem almost like maybe they weren't expecting the magnitude of it or they weren't fully prepared for it. But I don't know. I'm curious because I heard from a a few Astros fans who said, you know, I'm not watching this team anymore. I'm not watching the rest of the season anymore. But I imagine that is the great minority of the fan base. And so I wonder whether you think there's any long-term effect or whether it's just sort of thing that you weather for a while the way that they weathered being bad for a few seasons because there's a a payoff at the end of it. Yeah, like you, I mean, it was definitely – there were definitely some fans that I heard from who – who had that opinion and and but it was a minority and you didn't really hear it as the season went on it was it was a lot of you know august but then you know as they went on people kind of just stopped talking about it so yeah i i you know you you think it might have an effect but i'm not sure it will mm-hmm. was there any at all like discontent among players because there were you know as we know there were players who had on the record quotes about other players who were not their teammates and and how they had a zero tolerance idea about this before and then it just just you never heard about it again so was right. was it something that was complained about at all were you getting any sense that the players were uncomfortable with it was there any hope that players would have stood up and said too far or i mean <laughs> is the culture of 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 a team just too strong 
I mean, I think it was unquestionably an uncomfortable situation for them. I mean, like the, the, the whole week they traded for him on July 30th, I believe it was. And there was like a week there before he actually joined the team and the suspension was up and the players had to answer questions every day about it. A guy they had never met and a guy, you know, their front office traded for, they didn't have any say in the matter. So I think it was definitely uncomfortable, but, you know, I think once he was there, they they didn't really have a choice but to accept him uh, as a teammate because he's now their teammate. So it's it's a weird situation that, uh, yeah, I don't really know. It, it'd be interesting to, to know what they were really thinking. Uh, of course, the, they have to, they were all measured in their public comments, but yeah, it was, it was uncomfortable seems like a good word for it i wanted to ask also another thing i wrote about in the book and and also at the ringer in my scouting series a couple weeks ago is just how differently the astros are doing scouting along with all the other player development innovations they have basically dismissed their entire pro scouting staff which sets them apart from other teams and I wonder whether you've heard anything about the upsides or downsides of that approach, whether you think it's costing them anything. Yeah, I, mean, I think the thing they're leaving themselves vulnerable to in that is, you know, the, the private detective aspect of scouting, mm-hmm. you know, digging on a player's makeup, you know, that kind of stuff. What, you know, potential questions or, or character questions there, you know, that's the big thing they're, they're missing. Uh, they still do have a small group of amateur scouts, but they don't have... You know, scouts going to watch to advance, you know, major league games in person, minor league games. It's all done with, you know, a staff in Houston in their offices next to Minute Maid Park, you know, looking over the video and data. So I don't think we'll know years from now whether it was, you know, the right move or the wrong move. And I'm sure they'll adjust if, you know, as they go, if they think that they're, you know, too vulnerable in certain areas. But I, from, you know, I wrote about this a little bit last, last year, I think May uh, around Memorial Day. And, the, the private detective stuff and, and digging on a player's character is what you're leaving yourself open to, um, especially in the draft, if you're not careful about the players you're acquiring. All right. So we end with win total predictions. So we must ask you, how many wins will the Astros finish with in 2019? I'll say 98. I think their pitching staff is worse than last year, but their offense is better than last year. Mm-hmm. Their division's not very good, but... For some reason, I just think they're, you know, I think their their streak of 100 win seasons ends at, at two. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's like a, a jaw-dropping Carlos Correa season coming? Because I, I keep kind of waiting for that. And maybe I'm spoiled because he's had a couple five-win years at a really early age, which is no slouch. But I think obviously coming off of the, the injury-hampered season last year, and it, it just has always seemed like there's so much talent there that he is just going to, explode and be the best player in baseball all of a sudden i wonder whether you think he still has that potential yeah i do i i think i think it could be this year i mean he's looked really good in spring training there's been some balls he's hit that you know exit velocity of 113 116 and and those are you know he wasn't hitting the ball that hard last year yeah yeah i think it's possible he just got he has to stay healthy the the thing with him is he he put together that type of season in 2017 but he, he missed what six weeks because of a you know, an injury. So I think the only, he's only played one full major league season, but if he puts one together, I think, I think you could see that season. All right. So you can find Jake on Twitter at Jake M. Kaplan. You can read him all season long at The Athletic. Jake, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on guys.
Okay, future Ben here. Just wanted to note that Jake was saying in the interview that one of the big questions facing the Astros, one of the only questions facing the Astros is can they keep their players in place? Well, after we spoke, they started to answer that question. They signed Ryan Presley to a two-year extension and they signed Alex Bregman to a five-year extension that buys out three arbitration years and two free agent years. So now it's not just Altuve locked up long-term and they have one less question about pitchers who were about to depart. So obviously they saw the same need there that Jake did. We will take a quick break now and we'll be right back to talk about the Tigers with Anthony Fennick of the Detroit Free Press. So we are joined now by Anthony Fennick, who covers the Tigers for the Detroit Free Press. Hey, Anthony, how's it going? It's going. A little bit of an uh, <laughs> uh, up-and-down day here in Lakeland, Florida. It's tough in Detroit. Some big news on the Michael Fulmer front. Not good news for the Tigers. I mean, yeah. you guys know they were they were kind of counting on him to bring in, I don't, I don't know if I want to say a haul, but to bring some prospects back. And now it looks like he's going under the knife, so that's a big, big blow for the Tigers. Yeah, so you reported this news, sort of. There was other news on Tuesday, and then Mike Trout's extension, and this was not good news, but you were trying to report this news in the midst of uh, a couple flights, which could not have been easy. Yeah, it was uh, It was kind of a cluster. It started off, um, I was getting back, I was going, I was getting back to Tampa through Detroit. Baseball writers get some time off. I had like four or five days in the middle of... Uh, in the middle of this month, so I was getting back, and I, I kind of heard I, I heard something yesterday, and I, I tried to make a call, and I kind of put it on the back burner, and then just as I was getting off the flight in Atlanta, connecting, which was a little bit late because we had plane issues in Detroit, I got another kind of, let's just call it a tip, saying that I should kind of check in about w- w- what's going on with Fuller, because if you guys remember about a week ago, they just shut him down saying that he was working to refine his lower body mechanics. <laughs> yes. And there was nothing more than that. So I, I, I got this tip and I kind of checked in and I remember the, the most vivid part of today will be that when I saw my plane taxiing from the gate and I just kind of stayed there because I knew at that point, like I, I couldn't get in the air because something could be going down. So I just hung out there and tried to tried to get on top of it and then got back to good old Lakeland around five thirty, six o'clock. So yeah, it was that that's what makes this job kinda great is all the random places you're running into stuff and how much your travel plans change and then we wake up at six o'clock in the morning and spring training to do it all over again. But yeah, it was a, it was a pretty crazy day. Is that what makes this job great? <laughs> that seems like it's a, <laughs> what makes this job not so great. But I guess that's what gives you the uh, the enthusiasm to be a, a beat writer, which to me seems like a really daunting task. I think it's just me looking at the silver lining here. I got one <laughs> week left to spring training. Now we can finally open up with some real games. Because, and I can watch man, some Tigers start... baseball that counts for real. Woo. So For 162 games. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, a broader Fulmer question, obviously this this hurts the 2019 Tigers, but his career has not been on a great trajectory since the, the Rookie of the Year award. He's had a, a couple serious injuries now, and this takes him out of commission for this season. So I know that you said they were hoping he might be a trade chip this year. No, I know that he had been a trade chip potentially in prior years. Do you know whether the Tigers ever came close to cashing in Michael Fulmer before it was too late or at least too late for now? Look, there were there were teams that were were in hot pursuit of him the next the next summer, which would have been seventeen. And and at that point, Fulmer was coming off his rookie of the year season, looked every bit like a future frontline starter. I mean, this guy was nasty. And and there were teams, the the Cubs, I know the the Astros kept checking in about him, and and they were offered they were offered some stuff from what I could kind of gather on background, but. The, the, the catch-22 of it with the, from the Tigers' perspective was at this time, let's say, you know, June, early July, they had not gone forward on their rebuilding process yet. And I don't think they – well, clearly they didn't want to start that rebuilding process by trading Fulmer, who was really the one guy on the, the roster that you could kind of look into the future and say, okay, you know what, we, we still have five, six years of team control left on him. We could pretend, potentially see him being a guy that can be here at the end when this is all coming to fruition. And at that point, Justin Verlander hadn't been traded yet. Justin Upton hadn't been traded. The Tigers really, they went into the 17th season hoping to, to compete in, in the American League Central. They had a $200 million payroll that year. They, they, they took J.D. Martinez into the season. And at that point, when the biggest offers came in, they weren't ready to move on him. Look, two years later, I think it is fair to say that, okay, they should have traded him. But you can only say that with the with the benefit of hindsight because again 2017 we're talking a little bit of a different tone that's now two three surgeries ago but i'll tell you guys what from the naked eye watching him and you know we're not doctors we're not gouts most of us are just sitting up in the press box trying to you know get a grasp on this very complicated game but it, it, it just it always seemed that, that, that Fulmer was a, a, a blowout candidate just because of his his torquey delivery, very max effort every pitch. And, and, and you could just see the, the effort that went in every pitch he threw. And then over the last two years, I mean, it's just the dings and dents. I think late in that 17th season, a couple of months after they were really getting some good offers, that's when he underwent, well, let me try this here, ulnar nerve transposition surgery, I believe it is. I've tripped up on on it many times in the past, but that that kind of that stained him a little bit going into that off season when the team thought that that that, that would have been their next best chance to trade him. People are still wary of any elbow injury, even though it's not you know Tommy John or elbow ligament reconstruction. And then last season was was shortened with his third right meniscus surgery. And at this point, just in speaking with with other uh, other team officials, I mean. It, it would, it would take a lot for the Tigers to get the, the kind of packages that they were getting offered back then. But I, I think after going through this ordeal for two years where their top trade ship is banged up, I think that they were more than ready to move on if he would have had a help, healthy first half and, and gotten back under the radar. But the spring just hasn't been good. I mean, he, he he's come out throwing low 90s velocity. He was at 96.5 last year, according to Fangraphs. Publicly, they profess no worries, but you – Underneath the surface, the Tigers were very concerned. They didn't know if he was going to get that fastball velocity back. And look, now it just goes into the pile of, 
you know, some of those trades that didn't happen, trades that they should have made, and uh, hindsight tells us that they, they, they should have acted a lot sooner because this is the biggest chip of their rebuilding process that's going to probably go out the door without any fruition. One of the interesting things now that almost every team is willing to go into these multi-year rebuilds when things start to turn south is that not all rebuilds are the same. Some are two years and some are three years and some are four years. And figuring out which one of those you have uh, is both uh, part of the calculus of figuring out whether you want to keep or trade a uh, front of the rotation starter who's only got a year of service time. And uh, it's kind of what you're uh, playing for in these in-between years. And so it's, I don't know what the Tigers would have thought in 2017 the, the time frame was, but but last year it seems to me was something of a lost year in the, the rebuild. They did not really develop uh, any major leaguers from the scrap pile other than Nico Goodrum, who you would sort of uh, see uh, emerging for the next good Tigers team. And uh, their farm system isn't still any good and they didn't develop really any new trade pieces so what kind of time frame are we looking at is this like one of the the really like long and bleak ones i'd say that if i had a gun to my head i'd lean towards yeah it is it is one of the the long and bleak ones i mean like you mentioned it's kind of like no no two rebuilds are the same and the tigers went the full scale rebuilding route and you know when you know, there's a lot. There's a lot of fans who, especially Tigers fans, who have, who had grown jaded over the years um, because of all the success they had getting, you know, to the World Series every year, ALCS, big payrolls, and I, I think optimistically they think, okay, well, the, the the Tigers' stated goal is when 2021 comes around, they'll be back players in the free agent market. Some of these young players will develop to the point where they can count on them at the major league level. I think that's very optimistic. I still think that this has at least four, if not five years to go. Just looking at the the state of their their major league uh, roster and the and the minor league, I, I I think last year I think it's too harsh to say that it, it was kind of a la- a lost year because I think that for maybe the impacts that weren't felt at the big league level, I think the Tigers did they made two pretty good trades in and making something of Mike Fires, getting two relievers from the A's, and then also trading Leonis Martin to the Indians and getting a guy like Willie Castro. I think their farm system right now, you know, it, it, it's gotten some good pub across the board with even some publications calling it like a, you know, perhaps a top 10 org, organization. I, I wouldn't go that far, but I think what the Tigers have done a good job with is really adding some depth to this system. I think they have a lot of guys that are going to play in the major leagues in the future. The, the only thing that's holding it back, which is a very, very big thing, especially in the rebuild, is that they're, they're, they're just a little bit short on impact prospects, specifically offensive guys. I mean, the, the, the bats in their, in their system are few and far between, and they're really excited about the guys that they got in last year's draft, but guys like Parker Meadows, Brock Deathridge, but those guys are just they've just gotten drafted, and a lot of times it takes three, four more years for them. Some of these guys are high schoolers; they're not coming next year or the year after that. So it, it, it's a it's a big it's a big process in that regard. But I I just think that one of the most concerning things going forward is if we talk about Fulmer, who received two opinions to get Tommy John surgery today. Well. 
their farm system is based in large part on the guys like Casey Mize, Matt Manning, Franklin Perez, who has struggled to stay healthy. I mean, last year was, like you said, in terms of the whole Tigers farm system, but specifically for, for Perez, that was a loss year of development. And I think that it's very risky if you're kind of building this re- rebuild around righty power pitchers because of their, their, their frequency to get hurt. And that's what they're up against. I think that, again, they've made good strides, but not enough to where this, this process, which it, it, it's scary to some fans, but I mean, these rebuilds can take seven, eight years. I mean, you see the white Sox who are still, it seems like they've been rebuilding for 15 years and it, there's a lot of luck that goes into this, a lot of decisions behind the scenes that can, can take it one way or another. And I, I don't think the, the improvements they've made, the development that's happened has really fed this up at, at any point. You started covering the Tigers in 2015 when they weren't good, but they were coming off a playoff appearance and they weren't hopeless. They were pretty competitive the year after that. So I'm kind of curious about your perspective on Miguel Cabrera. A, just how much do you think he has left? How's he looking, et cetera? Because when he was on the field last year, he was still a, a pretty good hitter, but he wasn't on the field much. But also just kind of what you sense, if anything, about how he feels about being on a team like this with really no prospect of being good again during the time that he's on the team and maybe no prospect of being traded either, whether it's even possible to to (laughs) tell if that's something that's taking a toll on him. To be clear, he could be on the team through 2025. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, I know. I think 2025 is with the options. Yeah, it's 2023 without the options. (laughs) But they're vesting. (laughs) It's even mind-blowing without the, the, the five years, 154, what's ever left. I, you know what? I, I'll say this. I think that Miguel Cabrera could fall out of bed and hit 300, and I think we're seeing that early this spring. He got hurt last June, so he's essentially on the shelf for, what, seven, eight, nine months, and he gets back gets down here in spring training. I remember it was a week and a half into games, and he's like six for 13, Two of those outs were diving catches by the Cardinals outfielders, and he hit the ball with power to the opposite field. I just think that I think what we're going to see going forward is, and I think a lot of us have have underrated Miguel Cabrera as a hitter, and I think he's going to age fine at the plate. But the question is, is will he be able to stay healthy enough to hit? And I think so far, entering his mid thirties we've seen the answer to be no. Now, the Tigers are trying to protect himself from himself a little bit and, and play him at DH more often, but Cabrera is still, you know, say, say what you will about defensive metrics and their importance and whatnot, but Cabrera is still a highly skilled defensive first baseman, and this just goes back to the, the original thoughts on, on how impressive of a baseball player he is. I mean, as he's gotten older and that range has become what zero negative he, he he's learned how to position himself better on the field he's just instinctually he's able to get good breaks on balls and position himself around the bag and i i firmly believe that first base is uh, a very underrated position because for how much they touch the ball relative to other positions on the field and how important they are in making out infielders better or worse but offensively i just think that if he stays healthy 
I think he's going to age fine. I, I think the biggest, the most interesting thing with Cabrera going forward is what kind of a hitter does he want to be? Okay, and I say that in terms of you see Albert Pujols and how the last two or three years has gone for him in, in Anaheim, and Pujols is still putting out 20-ish home runs the last couple of years. And I think if Cabrera wanted to, he could hit 25, 30 home runs a year, if not more. I think physically, I mean, they're different ages, but I still think that Cabrera, talent-wise, holds up against many of the best players ever played the game. And I think if he focused more from a power perspective, he could be a guy that could still hit you know, 30 home runs, if not more, if that was his sole focus. The thing is, I don't think he can live with that low batting average because there, there comes a trade-off here, and Miguel Cabrera likes his hits. He likes his batting average. I mean, I think that this is a guy that is very prideful of that number that, you know, has really kind of diminished in importance over the years. But to him, he's going to go the other way and slap a single to right field and up the middle. And he's going to work those at-bats and do his whole hitterish thing. But I'm not sure if that's really the best thing for, for this Tigers team because, you know, let's say he singles to right field with two outs. Well, then he's on first base, and he's a station-to-station player, and he's not really benefiting the team with his probably his biggest ability for them now, which is hitting for power because they have, they have some really some power issues. So I think it's going to be interesting if he ever changes his philosophy at the plate, but, but like I told you guys, he loves that batting average and he likes getting those hits. So I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I'm in the process of trying to dig under the surface. He's a notoriously private guy. doesn't say much. That's not to say he's a bad guy, a hard guy to deal with. He's just really, truly a guy that doesn't really like the, the spotlight uh, very much. And I'm, I'm trying to get him to the surface to see what he really thinks of this rebuilding process. Because like you said, there's a very distinct chance that given his contract, his age, uh, the, the current situation the Tigers are in, that he doesn't play a meaningful game ever again. And I think that we're going to see earlier in spring training, there was a big sign in the Tigers clubhouse that says, talk less, work more, something along those lines. And it was, posted in the clubhouse and it said Miggy underneath. I think he's going to be in a very unique position this year because for the first time in his career, remember Victor Martinez has been playing alongside him for the last five, six years. He's going to be the only true veteran guy in that clubhouse. And he's not a leader by, he's not a vocal leader, but I think he's a, a leader that you just see early in the offseason when he reports to spring training. You see the way that the guys just gravitate to him. They, they understand that this is a first ballot, future Hall of Famer, guy that's considered one of the best hitters to ever play the game. And they do follow suit. I do think that he, he is able to lead in that regard. I think this team might need a little bit more vocal leadership, which is why I think Josh Harrison was a good signing. But I think there's a lot that he can do behind the scenes in terms of buying into this process if he is not okay with losing for the rest of his career. I think that that's where his biggest impact for the Tigers going forward will be. If he just simply, if he just simply can't deal with it anymore, but it, on that hand, it goes two ways. Does he become a distraction at that point? Does he become uh, tired of being here, try to force his way out or just try to make the best of these years? I think he's very happy in Detroit. Uh, he, he, he likes the fan base. He's, he's comfortable here, which is a big thing. I mean, we saw with, Mike Trout's reported $430 million, how much comfort can do. So I think it'll play out well. The biggest thing is, can he stay healthy? And I don't think anybody really knows the definite answer to that. 
There are very few owners who we pay much attention to or think of as making a, a big difference um, in the, the baseball side of things. But but Mike Illich was was one of the exceptions before he passed away. Um, and uh, so now uh, the team is is controlled by his son, Chris. After a couple of years, do you have any sense of of whether he is a owner with with m- much impact? Do we have to pay attention to Chris Illich? I don't think so. I mean, I just think that if we if we're talking about Mike Gillich is an impactful owner. I don't think we've seen that kind of we we haven't seen that that kind of activity from Chris. I think he's really grown into the role. I think that I'll remember most about his trip down here this spring was there was a I believe it was a midweek game. Tigers were at Disney World playing the the Braves, and Chris was back on the backfields watching some of the team's prospects. The, the Tigers are going to be run much more like a business versus a passion project under Chris's watch. And there's, you know, there's a lot of rumors that have always circulated in the in the Detroit area about whether or not Illich family is going to hold on to the Tigers, even though every time he, he speaks to the media on the subject, he says that, yes, the Illich family is going to own the Tigers for the foreseeable future. But you can you can just see the differences. I mean, we, we, we were talking about it late in the offseason. Like, could you imagine if Bryce Harper was still available and Mr. I was the owner here, the, the kind of moves he would make to get that guy in town. This isn't going to be throwing money at, at trying to fix problems like it was. And look, it, there was the very, very good with, with Mr. I. I mean, the Tigers really were more successful during that, that stretch where they didn't win a World Series between 2006 and, let's say, 2014 than they'd ever been at any point in their, their franchise. I mean, like I said, it was deep run in the playoffs. It's a deep, deep run in the playoffs. I mean, it's eye-opening to, to remember that there was a rotation with Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, David Price, Rick Porcello. I mean, the list goes on. The Tigers aren't going to be going that route, and and I think there's some question in my mind as to if they will be able to to flex their financial muscle again in the years to come, and if they do, how much? Because I firmly believe that if you want to be a legitimate World Series contender for pick whatever year of window you want, you're going to have to throw some money behind that. I think the the, the Brewers, a small market team, did a wonderful job this offseason of kind of upping their aggressiveness to to really benefit the market and keep their team as one of the best in, in the National League. And the Tigers have to do that at some point. But when, when Illich was down here, he, he was asked pretty point blank if, if, if that's part of the, the process. And he didn't give a, a, a straight yes or no answer on the payroll, only to say that the, the resources will in, increase as, as time goes on. You can take that from whatever, whatever, whatever angle you want to. The Tigers have really tried to catch up in analytics and player development and all the stuff that they really ignored during his dad's days when they were just giving out $150, $200 million contracts to, to every guy and trying to win a World Series with, without a functioning bullpen, which didn't go well. I think he's buying into what, what the front office is doing in terms of collecting these prospects. But I, I wouldn't say he's an impactful owner. I think he's more behind the scenes, more of a business guy. I, I, I do think that at, when you're talking about owners, they really hold the key to this whole thing in terms of how much they want to push the needle to get their team better. And in many cases, I think it, it helps to have a guy like, like Mike Illich, who was a fan and cares about the product on the field. And I, I don't think he would stand for a rebuilding process, but that's, that's where we're at with the Tigers. 
it's going to be very interesting to see in the years to come if they start getting some of these everyday guys up there and, and they're kind of at the point where they need to spend how much they're going to spend. But I, I don't think he's really a huge guy to keep an eye on right now. Yeah, I have definitely spent the, the past decade or so thinking of the Tigers as a, a big market franchise with, with one of the two or three biggest payrolls in the American League. And I don't know how much of that is the actual true market size or, or, or Illich's prerogative. When they come out of this rebuild, how big a market are they? Are they truly a big market franchise right now? No, I think that they're. I, I think they're firmly a middle market now. I think that they're like a middle market with maybe you could put an asterisk on because De- Detroit is a great baseball town, and I think that's already been established over that that stretch from '06 to '14. I mean, the difference between like Detroit and Cleveland is kind of eye opening to me because you see for the past three years the kind of teams that the Indians have put out there. Yet you go to their ballpark, what? 10 times a year and they can't sell the place out. And when, when this was in, when we were in Detroit, 11, 12, 13, pick a year, that Comerica park would be sold out every night. And I think that the, the city of Detroit and their sports fandom is that if you put a winning team on the field, a fun team like the Tigers had been for the past decade, they're going to come. And I think they're going to up that market value. But I think market wise, it's a middle market, and I think that that's what they're going to be operating as going forward. There are going to be no illusions that they can be stepping up to the plate, competing with the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Red Sox. That's just not going to happen. So when you look at their when you look at their payroll this year, I believe they're hovering somewhere over the 120 mark because they still have you know the Cabrera's contract and Jordan Zimmerman for a couple of years at 25, 26 million apiece. I don't know what their high water mark is going to be now, but I would expect that once this rebuild kind of turns around on the other side of the wind curve, I'd say 140 to 160 is kind of going to be their max point, which again, it, it restricts them from getting a lot of the players that they got over the years, which, which helped them become a kind of a, a household name with the Verlanders and the Cabreras of the world. And as I alluded to it, earlier there's also a a downside to this too because the organization has been hurting the last few years and trying to kind of recover from some of these deals like mr i wanted victor martinez loved victor well they signed him for two three years too much and they were hurting for that jordan zimmerman the last couple years aren't going to be that great in that deal. I mean, somehow they, they got rid of the Justin Upton deal a couple of years ago, but imagine if that was still hanging over the books, those kind of, those kind of contracts for a team like the Tigers who are a mid market team are kind of crippling, but at full speed, if you've got a good team, a, a, a title contending team, some, some exciting young players, I think that you can be able to be more aggressive like the Brewers were. I mean, we were in, we were in Milwaukee to end the season last year, and that place was electric, and it made a huge impression. It's like, man, they have, they really have a lot of pieces in place here. Now, if ownership can take that next step and get a little bit more aggressive, especially with the free agent market the way it was this year and, and, and in past years, they could really do some damage there. And I think they did that with, with Yasmani Grandal bringing back Mike Moustakas. And I think if you're a Tigers fan, that's what you want to see in the future once Tigers get to that kind of level. Yeah, so speaking of the future, 
Sam mentioned Nico Goodrum, who's a kind of a fun player and can play a bunch of positions. And you've got Jacoby Jones, who's a really good fielder. I mean, there are a few players who are fun to watch here, but there are an awful lot of placeholders and stop gaps and guys who are just there because no one better is around. So if you had to point to anyone on this roster who looks likely to be part of the next winning Tigers team, whenever that comes around, is there anyone who stands out? as that kind of category or or is everyone kind of you know this is for now but not for later well first of all i like the word i like the word placeholder that's a very nice word i'm going to be using that in in, in the future story too um i think i i I think one guy is james candelario i think that first of all that trade that they made with the cubs two seasons ago i believe that looks that looks to be very um in their favor when they received candelario and then a young infield prospect named Isaac Paredes, who is pretty much going to be their their next. He's kind of established himself as their next impact prospect. Twenty year old, he's really rake. He's a bigger guy, but he, he's still got a lot of instincts to play on the diamond. But I think Candelario. It was kind of like a, a, a two year process with Candelario and then Kristen Stewart last year in 2017. Candelario came up in September, and it's just. He, he immediately, he was not overmatched, um, had a very good plate presence about him. And then last season, and it's just very interesting how when you're really in, like getting in the box, you can see these little small fickle adjustments they make. Well, well teams were busting Candelario up and in, they were exploiting a hole in his swing inside. And after a very hot start, I'd say until maybe the through the middle of May, he really kind of tanked. And at the end of the year, you look at the back of his baseball card, and I think it's got maybe like a 212, 220 kind of average. And it's like, you know what? That wasn't a good season for Candelaro, basically, when it started. But I think that he played through some injuries last year. He went out there on an almost everyday basis. He kind of learned what the full grind of being a major leaguer is. And then most importantly, August comes around and he makes an adjustment, moves away from the plate a few feet. It changes kind of how he sees the pitches. It opens up that, I don't know if you want to call it, opens up that hole, but it eliminates it in large part. And he finished up the season very strong. I think he's a guy that's going to be with them through the duration. It'll be interesting to see where he goes in the future in terms of he's playing third base right now. I think he's made some small strides, but you know, I, I find myself looking out when I'm in the press box uh, at least I did many nights last spring. Nick Castellanos was always very highly criticized for his defense because mm-hmm. he didn't have much range. Candelario doesn't stand out as a as an incredibly plus defensive player at third base. So I think going forward with guys like Paredes and they have kind of a glut of young minor middle infielders in the system. I think that they would consider moving Candelario to first base once Cabrera goes to DH full time. And then perhaps you get a guy like Paredes up to play third base. I think Candelario is the one guy. Nico Goodrum, you mentioned him. He, he he's looked he's looked good again this spring. A lot more pop in the bat than I expected. A lot more comfortable this year. Nico kind of came out of left field to to win a job last year, and now he's kind of walking around like he he knows he belongs here. And then you know the the, the other guys are going to be are going to be kind of deep dives that aren't aren't up there yet with the club. I think that. A guy that's going to turn some heads this year is likely Michael Fulmer's fill-in, who's Spencer Turnbull, a righty with a lot of movement. He's a guy. He's got a good body. He's a, he's a tall. He's kind of a lanky guy. There's there's still a little bit of projectability there. 
he should get that fifth spot. And down the stretch last year, when when the Brewers had guys following the Tigers, advancing them late in the season, they were in that back and forth race with the Cubs. They were saying, "Hey, Turnbull's the guy we don't want to face because of all that movement on his pitches. He's really impressed this spring." So I think that he's a guy that could kind of stick around for a bit. Jacoby Jones, I mean, I think this is a big make-or-break year for him just because he's got all the athletic ability of the world, and it stands out. If, he, if he's ever able to put it all together, I think he's got an all-star player there, especially with, with how good he is defensively. But he just does not have a mature plate approach. He just can't really ever seem to get in a groove offensively. And then I guess I, I, I would say, finished that question with saying that he's going to be challenged at some point this this season by Daz Cameron, who Cameron's been very impressive uh, this spring. He's just got, he's got really good baseball instincts. Obviously his dad, Mike Cameron, but I mean, this, he's a very toolsy guy. And I think if the Tigers were in a different stage, maybe two, three, even four years ahead, and they were chomping at the bit to kind of push that envelope of competing, I think the Cameron would be the guy that, could could be up here now. So I think we'll see Cameron in center field for a long time with Comerica Park and Candelario on one of the corners. Mm-hmm. And then I guess lastly, to bring things back to the Michael Fulmer free rotation, I'm wondering if you think there's anyone who might step up there. I know that the, the Tigers brought in a, a couple of placeholders, if you want to bring back that word, in Tyson Russ and Matt Moore, who are not really the, the guys you want to trust if you want innings. Those are about the last guys you'd, you'd want for that role, really. But there is Matthew Boyd. There is Daniel Norris. Zimmerman is still around. I'm sure that a lot of people are wondering whether Norris can regain some of his lost luster. Yeah, I think that, you know, I mentioned Turnbull. Norris will be interesting to see where they, where they go with him. He's, he's really showed some improvement the last two weeks, beginning with a, a front side balance drill. He failed to carry over from his left groin surgery last year. He's got a couple more ticks on the fastball. I'm, as well as the scouting community, I'm a little bit split on where his future role is. I mean, I think it, even if it, there's a tick or two up in velocity, Norris is still 91, 92, 93. That's, I, I don't see how that stuff plays up uh, in a much bigger role in the bullpen. How I see it going forward is, is that, look, I think that they all, they're all in agreement that they'd rather have a starting pitcher, Daniel Norris, because there's more value in, in, in that kind of guy especially with the, the loads of potential he has. But when we talk about Daniel Norris's potential, I think that we have to talk about the different Daniel Norris's in terms of the guy three years ago was throwing 95, 96 miles an hour. This guy isn't. So I think that going into the season, they're probably going to carry eight relievers because they start the season with eight straight games. I think they're going to probably put him in long relief, see how he does there, keep him stretched out to the point where maybe they can send him down to Toledo or if Turnbull struggles, put him at the back end of the rotation. Matt Boyd's really turned into a, a pretty darn serviceable pitcher, and I, I would expect him to continue improving. I mean, guys, this was a guy three years ago. His first year, he came over to Detroit with Norris for David Price, and I remember seeing him at the end of the year. He had just gotten completely shelled by Texas, and he, he just kind of kept repeating, like, I know I can pitch in this league, and I was just kind of thinking, man, good luck, because he was getting he was getting racked around, and he's really made some big strides last year. We're, we're seeing some more velocity out of him this spring. Velocity we didn't see out of him until 
July, August last year, I think now with Fulmer likely headed for the shelf, I think that Matt Boyd kind of steps up as the Tigers' most attractive uh, trade option from a starting pitcher standpoint. I agree with you on Tyson Ross and Matt Moore. I just think the you know, for better or worse, they're trying to catch some lightning in a bottle there, try to get some, some trade value. I just think it's very unusual for it. It's the exception to the rule that they were able to move Fires and Leonis Martin, who were essentially the same kind of signings last year. I think that's the, more the exception to the rule versus the rule. I think they're going to have a hard time barring some kind of, you know, post-prime breakout for either one of these guys. And Tyson Ross, of course, had thoracic outlet surgery, and the, the track record for pitchers, especially starters bouncing back from that, is not very good. And, you know, the last guy is kind of the guy that they're waiting to get off the books to, to kind of get this rebuilding process going forward and get pair their payroll down to a lower floor level, and that's Zimmerman. But Zimmerman is, is reported at full health this spring, and it's a different kind of full health than we've seen in the past. You actually believe him when he says it now because he looks really good. And there were there were at least two National League teams who were interested in bringing him in the fold late last season after the after the non waiver trade deadline has passed. Now that's a very complicated kind of trade because he still had fifty ish, maybe more, seventy million dollars left on that deal. But I think he's a guy that if he has a good first half. I think there will be a team in need of veterans starting pitcher out there. Look at Zimmerman. If his stuff's up to snuff, let's say, I could see the Tigers eating a bunch of money just to get a prospect or two in that deal. So that's kind of how I see the starting pitching shaking out. But keep your eye on Turnbull. I just, I, I have a good feeling about this kid, and I have since kind of getting some, some reports out of the minor leagues last year that this guy's got some real serious stuff. So perhaps in the uh, the disappointment of the, the Fulmer injury diagnosis they can they can get a little bit of a surprise with Turnbull. so we always end these segments by asking the guests for a win total prediction when we're talking about a team like the, the 2019 tigers i question why we even go through this exercise because if whatever the answer is it's it's not going to be great but uh for consistency's sake i will ask you to give us a, a number let's say you know at first before this fulmer injury i was probably at 94 or 95 they've, they've lost 90 in the last two years and i i'm starting to doubt if they're ever going to truly bottom out and lose like 106 105 games i just think that they have they have enough of a i don't know if i want to call it a nucleus but i'm i'm a very big fan of the way the coaching staff goes about their business every day they got something going in that regard in terms of the day-to-day after fulmer though i mean that's a big blow I gotta go with ninety-nine. Gotta go with ninety-nine because I've been I've been told from Tigers guys throughout the spring that don't let don't let spring training the eighty degree weather in Lakeland sunshine affect uh what you think about this team. It's still gonna be a struggle. And so I'll go with ninety-nine. All right. So sixty-three wins. Nice. Okay. So you can follow Anthony on Twitter at Anthony Fennick. You can find him in the free press and see him on MLB Network and read him in Baseball America, writing about Tigers prospects who do exist. And uh, we appreciate you coming on the show. 
Hey, I appreciate you guys having me, man. Keep up the good work. Okay, so that will do it for today. Well, we made it. The regular season has started. I know it doesn't actually feel like opening day, but as I speak these words, the Mariners are right now beating the A's in a game that counts. Ichiro Suzuki popped out and walked. He became the second oldest position player ever to start a season opener after Julio Franco. So I know it doesn't feel like real opening day, but technically the offseason is over. We made it. One other thing. It's funny, Sam and I didn't have time to talk about it today, but after we talked on our previous episode about minor league pay, and how minor leaguers would make more money and whether other teams would follow the Blue Jays' lead. It was reported that MLB is actually considering raising salaries across the board. I was optimistic that other teams would follow suit. Sam was more pessimistic that enough other owners would follow the Blue Jays' example to produce change quickly. So it seems like this might be a measure that actually does bring about a larger improvement in a fairly short span of time. So that seems positive and encouraging. Of course, MLB could have not gone out of its way to restrict minor league salaries and earnings before and to lobby Congress to do so, but hey, at least things are belatedly changing here. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already done so. Joshua Wetzel, David Wintz, Cody Mullins, Andy, and Ben Johnson. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. We've now passed the 9,000 member mark. On our way to 10,000, you can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please check out our sister site, daughter site, Banished to the Pen, the blog started by Effectively Wild listeners. They are just rolling out all of their 30 team previews for this season, so I will link on the show page to the landing page where you can find all of those previews. Go read about your team. They're always interested in writers too, so if you're interested in getting into baseball writing, it's been a bit of a springboard for some writers who've gone on to other sites, so go contact the people at Banished to the Pen. You can pre-order my book, The MVP Machine, which comes out late this spring. It's 35% off on Amazon right now. Not sure how long that will last, so go get it. It's also on sale at other sites. I'll be back next time with Meg, and we'll be tackling the penultimate team preview podcast. Almost there. This one will be Yankees and Marlins, the Jeter episode. Talk to you then.